page 23, part two, four ways of looking at a koan. Golden. <clears throat> the air and the earth interpenetrated in the warm gust of spring. The soil was full of sunlight <clears throat> and the sunlight full of red dust. The air one breathed was saturated with earthly, earthy smells and the grass under foot had a reflection of the blue sky in it. Willa Cather. I grew up in Southern California and moved north when I was 30. A few years later, there was an ex exhibit in San Francisco of the painter Richard Dobbincorn's work. <clears throat> One hall was filled entirely with his Ocean Park series, large abstract canvases he painted when he lived near the beach west of Los Angeles in a studio around the corner from my home while I was in college. The first thing you notice if you know that landscape is how true the colors are the Mediterranean blue sea and sky, the pastel stucco walls, the hot red and deep peak splashes of Bougainvillea against those walls. Then you see that what's really going on is that the light is true. A light I bathed in for 30 years and suddenly realized in the presence of those paintings, I hadn't experienced again in Northern California. I, I'm going to show you one of his paintings. I went to an exhibit of his work in San Francisco, and there was an old man sitting in a chair in the corner of the room. This is before the internet, a long, long time ago. And I was sure it was him, and I kind of watched him thinking it was him, and later I found out it was just some old man. But, um, <laughs> But anyway, I, I, he's a very important artist. You should, know, you should know his work. Richard Diebenkorn, here we go. Uh, I have to share. Speaking of artists, do you know if Malen is um, here? Yes. This weekend? Or? She, yeah, she, she'll be here this the, through the weekend. Okay. I'm going to come up and see the show on Saturday. Well, you should let her know to make sure she's there. She'd love to see you. Okay. All right. This is the breakout room. That's not very smart. Okay, here we go. So this is this ocean park. Let's see if come on. Here we go. Just want you to Oh. I was like picturing something different. Some are a little more Maybe, uh, 
Realistic. Uh, okay. Okay, we can go back, but I wanted you to see his, his stuff. Yeah, thanks for sharing. There we go. Okay. Paintings gave me the light of my childhood, which I knew in my cells, but wasn't aware of. So I had the world and my own life in a way I hadn't before because I became conscious of something and could articulate something that until then had been immensely important, but unconscious. And this is how koans can work. They illuminate the essential nature we already know, are but lose touch with. They too can give us the world and our own lives in ways we didn't have them before. There are layers to our consciousness and layers in the journey we make with a koan. There's the layer of story. When I was a child, we used to do this and that. The way we narrate our lives to ourselves. The self is a figure against the backdrop of the landscape, time and place are the field through which an individual consciousness moves with its own momentums. Usually, it's a story full of feeling and meaning. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> then there's the layer of sense memory, the hot sand under feet calloused from years of walking on the beach, the exhilaration of knowing, even as a child, that I could dive under any wave and find that calm place just above the sand. Uh, the smell of the turpentine we used at the end of the day to clean off the tar that came from offshore oil rigs. This is the self in the landscape where consciousness is diffused and takes in and is taken in by the other. Before that, there's just the light, the light as I experienced it in Diebenkorn's paintings. Here, there's no distinction between self and landscape. Everything, pink stucco houses and blue sky and the small girl standing at the end of the pier, it's brilliant with the same light, which comes from everywhere in nowhere at once, inside and outside, and is the stuff of which it is <coughs> all made. We travel through all these realms when we work with koans. We hear King Shui's cry, I am King Shui, alone and destitute. Please give me alms. We wonder, when have I been in this state? What is my loneliness and my poverty? What is my longing? In this way, we explore our own story. Another time, in another koan, somebody asks about the relationship between form and emptiness, and someone else answers, it's like a donkey watching a well. And there I am, sitting in the gallery, 
looking at the painting, just like that donkey. But then the first someone flips it over and says, it's like a well watching a donkey. And suddenly the paintings are gazing back. The air in the gallery is zinging with life. Where suddenly are the edges of self? And then there are the moments when everything drops away. And that famous koan isn't about the dog or Buddha nature, or even the pilgrim with her questions. Xiaoxiao's no isn't about anything at all, but is the light itself coming from everywhere and nowhere at once. How do we move through these layers? Here's a poem by Li Qingzhao, who was writing at the time the great Chinese koan collections were being made almost a thousand years ago. She evokes the encounter with koan or art or the truth of our own lives. <clears throat> I, often I recall that day, the river pavilion in the setting sun, and we too drunk to know the way home. As our high spirits fled, we started to return late in our boat but were confused, entered deeply, a place where the flowering lotus. Was in full bloom. And struggling to go through, struggling to go through, we startled a whole sandbank of parents into flight. Are those golden moments, the river pavilion in the setting sun. And then inevitably our high spirits wear out. And on top of that, we've lost the way home. We're caught up in the struggle, just trying to get through. Don't notice the lotus in full bloom all around us. But suddenly something happens. There's a great whoosh and blur of movement and everything, the waning day, the struggle to get home, falls softly into the water. And the whole universe is heron. The day will return. We still have to get home and sober up. But it's been changed by our experience of the herons, the messengers of eternity, who have reminded us that we too, golden moments and dispirited ones, are eternity itself. That's a really pretty line. The um, the herons, the messengers of eternity, who reminded us that we too, golden moments and dispirited ones, are eternity itself. Yeah, I love this that she, the way she's talking about a koan before you even get to the koan, you know, as it's part of life. Mm -hmm. I, I love the poem too, because it reminds me of all the times that, um, you know, I'm thoughtlessly struggling through, not even noticing what's around me. And then something comes to shock me into total awareness of this moment now, you know, <laughs> you know, the wonder of it, um, 
You want to read it again? Uh, sure. Often I recall that day, the river pavilion in the setting sun, and we too drunk to know the way home. As our high spirits fled, we started to return late in our boat, but were confused, entered deeply, a place where the flowering lotus was in full bloom. And struggling to go through, struggling to go through, we startled a whole sandbank of herons into flight. I could picture that. You know, you're so intent on getting home and then something just disrupts that whole thing in your back and the wonder of the moment, you know. <laughs> um, Robert, Robert Frost said, it takes all kinds of in and outdoor uh, learning to get adapted to my kind of fooling or something like that, something like that. But it's... It's really neat how, uh, you know, being a poet is not just being able to write a poem, but having some, having great experiences in life. Mm -hmm. Somehow that was a big surprise to me when I figured that out. <laughs> that you couldn't just, you know, be a poet by assembly words in a clever way. <laughs> I, I think poetry, can have a way of making the ordinary suddenly stand out as something. Oh, I know what it, Robert Frost said. It takes all kinds of in, in and outdoor schooling to get adapted to my kind of fooling. That was it. Okay. Okay. And also one more thing about Robert Frost that's completely irrelevant, but he was teaching, I think at Smith College and the first day he would tell his students, if you really want to be a poet, get out of here, drop out of school. You shouldn't be here. <laughs> uh, did anybody drop out? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right. Uh, I guess I'll start reading this one. Uh, like this poem and those paintings, Koans don't give us information about something. They present the thing itself. They don't teach us something we didn't know about the natural habits of herons or the ability of paint to capture light. They, illu oh, they illumine. Illumine? How do you say that? Illume. Maybe it's a, just illume. What do you think? Any ideas? It's illumine. Illumin. 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 Thank oh, you. Okay. They illumine. Okay. I always say illuminate. Illumine. They illumine a state of consciousness we can enter. A state of consciousness within the bounds of our ordinary lives, but in, inst but in an instant dissolving those bounds. When we encounter a koan like this, one taken from poet Paul Eluard, there is another world, but it is inside this one. There is another world, but it is inside this one. We know we're in the presence of the numinous, 
and that we're receiving an invitation. In his essay, Notes on Beauty, the art critic Peter Shigeldahl uh, says that beauty stops us in our tracks. Thoughts and feelings that have been flowing in one direction pause, and when they resume, they're traveling on a different trajectory. Beauty is, he says, a mental solvent that dissolves something else, melting it into radiance. Also a wonderful description of the moment a koan falls open. Footnote 10. Nine and ten are references. If we can meet a koan in this way, if we can, I love that idea, a koan falls open. Isn't that nice? If we can meet a koan in this way, if we can set aside even the intention of answering it and just sit in the room with the paintings, listening with our eyes and seeing with our ears, as the koans say, our intractable trajectories might pause and then change. We're in a new moment, one that has never existed before. Though the light there might feel like something we've always carried inside us. So now we see why she, she talked about uh, Diebenkorn's paintings. So makes more sense, doesn't it? Sorry, I forgot to unmute. Born in fire, a belly full and full of hell, unending eons of passion, wildfire burning without end. But flowering grasses are born again in the spring wind. Thank you. In the 8th century, a new kind of charm developed in response to a cataclysmic time in Chinese history. In the space of 10 years, two-thirds of the population died of rebellion, invasion, famine, and disease. A sort of order was eventually restored, but Tang Dynasty China was no longer a flourishing empire, and life had a new tenuousness. A few Chan innovators wanted not to escape the catastrophe looming around them, but to more fully meet it with what philosopher Simon Weil called a just and loving gaze. If they were going to be helpful, they had to develop, and quickly, flexibility of mind, an easy relationship with the unknown, and a robust willingness to engage with life as they found it. Perhaps most important, they needed a really big view. For them, Chan practice wasn't about getting free of the world. It was about being free in the world. How do we fall 
how do we fall willingly into the frightened, blasted, beautiful, tender world? Because to paraphrase Peter Hershock in his wonderful study of Chan, it's not enough to see what Buddha nature is. You have to realize what Buddha nature does. It's not enough to see what Buddha nature is. You have to realize what Buddha nature does. Can we look at that footnote 11? See what that's, if there's, if that's from something. Whatever you want. Okay. It's just the book, which we did read in um, that. Did not finish. Right here, right here, the book. But we did not finish it. <laughs> oh, Trouty is right. We have one more chapter. <laughs> I don't remember exactly what happened, but we started meeting at my house and reading it, right, Trouty? Yes. But what, what happened to Death in Practice? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how that was, but we started actually upstairs in a Central Market. Maybe it was in depth in practice, but we there was just a group of us reading it. Maybe, yeah. And, maybe. and we went through the whole book with the last chapter, and I have it. I have a bookmark in it. Okay, so we have something to get back to now. So it's your turn to read, Charlie, I think. The first Oh no, Nelda. Nelda. Nelda just read. I just oh, okay. read. Then it is Trouty. Okay. Okay, thank you. The first cons are field notes from their experiments in the getting of this kind of freedom. They record encounters between a teacher named Mazu Daoi, who came to be known as Master Ma and his students. Before he settled down to teach, Ma made a 20-year pilgrimage through China's devastated landscape. And his teaching style was clearly influenced by what he saw on that long walk. He was direct, uncompromising, and often physical. In those days, people came to the monasteries for a lot of reasons from a spiritual vocation to the promise of steady meals. But anyone who was looking for escape at mass monastery was in for a shock. When he was asked once about the essence of his school, he replied, oh, it's just a place where you get let go of your body and your life. <laughs> That's quite a statement during a time when everyone knew people who had lost their lives. <laughs> Resemble something for, for us nowadays? Maybe not as bad, yeah. From Ma's perspective, the need was so great that there wasn't time for people to despair or lack co confidence or run away. It's as if he were saying that you can get clear right now about your own nature and the nature of life, and then you can roll up your sleeves and start doing something about it. Until then, Chan was largely an introspective meditation practice. You looked inward to find your true self. 
Ma and his contemporary Shitu Jikan uh, raised the eyes of Chan to the horizon. And Shitu's word, whatever meets your eye is the way. This true self you are looking for, they said, is not just here in your own heart, mind, but everywhere. Everything you see is Buddha nature. Everything you see is you. And this at a time when what you saw included ruined towns, blighted fields, refugees starving by the roadside. There's something so moving about the large and generous spirit of these two men who responded to the devastation around them with, this is all me, this is all you. For them, the way to come to terms with life's pains is not to turn away, but to move deeper into life and to encourage as many others as possible to join you. They embrace the great matter of their time. What do we do now? One in three who survive. Are we one in three who survive? Before Ma and Shitu, formal Chan teaching had consisted largely of lectures given to groups of students. The heart of Shitu's and particularly Ma's teaching was something new, a close encounter between two people either alone or as part of a group. Awakening, they saw, happens in relationship. We meditate together and talk together. We hear birds calling and cars laboring up a hill. As Ma and Shitu did with each other, we find a deep communi communion with someone we've never met. Sometimes with someone who's been long dead. We spend a lot of time in the company of our thoughts and feelings. And sometimes we are companions to silence. Our meditation is made not just of the vastness and the deep engine of concentration. It is also made of these relationships. Then one day, for no apparent reason, something particular comes to fetch us. The morning star rises, or the retreat cook coughs, and we fall open. A particular close encounter with a particular other opens us to a meeting with life itself. Practice is about making us fetchable. It helps us to recognize what gets in the way of our being fetched, and then it gives us a method to deconstruct the obstacles. Most people find this difficult to do on their own, and for Ma and Shitao, that's where the power of close encounters comes in. Ma's exchanges with his students could be mild, probing, or literally upending, but they were never about winning an argument or making someone feel stupid. Over and over again, tirelessly, relentlessly, they were an invitation to freedom. Talking about freedom or even modeling a free life wasn't enough. These close encounters allowed people to experience freedom for themselves. Neither Ma nor Shitao allowed questioners to hold on to the position of someone who doesn't get it. But they weren't interested in replacing that position with a better one. 
I didn't used to get it, but now I do. Their project was more radical. What's it like to have no position at all? Chateau would challenge his questioner's self-doubt, which is often the unacknowledged basis of a position. Huh, okay. What is the questioner's self-doubt? Yeah. Uh-huh. You want to read this? Yeah. Jess? Mm -hmm. Someone asked Chateau, what am I supposed to do? Why are you asking me? Where else can I find what I'm looking for? Are you sure you're lost it? <laughs> Chateau's responses aren't dismissals, but genuine questions. Why are you asking me this? And what's the question under your question? Uh, what is your deepest longing? And what if you realize that you already have what you long for? That reminds me, Kim, of what you said. Uh, that, you know, if I never answered a question, I'd, I'd never <laughs> be wrong. <laughs> Peg, Peg has said so many times that koans are, are about relationships. And I like how she's uh, explaining that. In a similar way, Ma would challenge this assumption that if you don't understand something, that's a problem to be fixed. Or would challenge the assumption. And we never heard that in school, did we? You know, where we would get an A for saying, I don't know. Someone once said that he didn't understand one of Ma's favorite famous sayings, that your heart mind is Buddha. Ma replied, the heart mind that doesn't understand is exactly it. There's nothing else. When we think <coughs> there's something wrong with not getting it, when the mind makes up commentaries about what it means not to get it, well, that's the heart mind being Buddha, but you see it. To be wholeheartedly unsure to take up a question like, <coughs> what does it mean that my heart mind is Buddha, I wonder. Sincerely and without veering off into commentary, Ma found that that was a direct way for people to experience for themselves the heart mind that is Buddha. That's a nice statement, isn't it? To be wholeheartedly unsure. Yeah, it's these open-ended questions where you don't allow your mind to come up with an answer. I like that. Mm -hmm. um, it's an opening. What, uh, Kim, did you go to the page before? Okay. So he's saying on the bottom that uh, the unacknowledged basis of a position is often the challenge is often the questioner's self-doubt uh, what does that mean hmm. 
Why are you asking? No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's good. Well, I, I always have a lot of self-doubt, so I... You want to start and read reread re this, the whole thing, the whole paragraph? Uh, okay, that'll help. Neither Ma nor Chateau allowed questioners to hold on to the position of someone who doesn't get it, but they weren't interested in replacing that position with a better one. I didn't used to get it, but now I do. Their project was more radical. What's it like to have no position at all? Chateau would challenge his questioner's self-doubt, which is often the unacknowledged basis of a position. Unacknowledged basis of a position. And then there's a call. Oh, I think I get it now. Okay, so how do you understand? I think Nandia wants to say something, right? Yeah. I was going to say it just seems to be pointing to um, a non-fixity um, non of view. Uh, allowing oneself to not uh, get locked in. Yeah. It's like the way that I'm reading it now is like one of those questions, where else can I find what I'm looking for? Are you sure you lost it? The where else can I find what I'm looking for is the unacknowledged basis of a position that just by asking the question, there's something I need there's where do I find it? And challenging that question, you know, because if the goal is wanting to know what's like to have no position, then uh, there's some, there's some, what's it called? Biases or there's some perceptions or views, I guess, what Nandia said, there's some views that are tied up to it. There's like an agenda. Yeah. It presupposes that uh, there's this thing to to be sought. Right. And that you you're lost. So that's a mindset. The story I'm lost comes with sub stories. Right. That's right. Yeah, that's, uh, it reminds me of like Anne on her Sunday talk. She talked about core beliefs, like things that are happening underneath some uh, layers that are driving us that we don't question, you know, but they're happening. I think it's even, it can even be deeper maybe than not questioning. It can be, we, we often don't even know they're operational. And, and we're working from that place, you know? Right. We don't know who's driving the car. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do, we're, we, we read this paragraph? Yeah. Yeah. We read this I think page. we're on the next page. It, was it who, who goes? Who just read? Larry? I think it was Kim. Did you just read? I think so. Okay, so I read. In the hands of his imitators, Ma's forceful teaching style became something of a menace and a cliche. 
but originally it arose from the urgency of the time. Ma knew the power of our constraining habits, and he also knew the power of being free from them, if only for a moment. He pulled the rug out with the hope of surprising us into free fall. Behind the shock tactics, Ma's perspective was deeply optimistic and encouraging. <coughs> right here and right now, he invited, finding your footing as a realized human being. Meet me eye to eye as an equal. Drop the notion that there's something to get. You already have it. Let's see it. In the language of his descendant, Linji Xuan, not pronounced correctly, let us be true persons without rank or position together. And let us see what becomes possible when we do. Hmm. Ma believed that responding to our time is an essential part of realization. He once said that from the point of view of the Bodhisattva, Bearing yourself in emptiness and not knowing how to get out is like suffering the torments of hell. Pardon. As our hearts and minds open in meditation, it is actually painful not to open our hands as well. For Ma, hell wasn't the trouble he saw all around him. Hell was turning away from it, trying to escape into a separate peace. These are the stories that began the Quan tradition. Ma and Shito didn't know the, <clears throat> they were making Quans. They were just having conversations. Generations later, the power of those conversations was still reverberating, and they have been taken up as Quans ever since. The Great Sutra. Give me one wild word to follow. Terry Tempest Williams. What kind I of a baby would get a middle name named Tempest? <laughs> I mean, it may have been one she took upon herself. Oh, okay. I was thinking it must have been a crazy baby. <laughs> Like Sufi music and Cro-Magnon cave paintings, koans are an art form that invites us into that larger experience of things we sometimes call the spiritual. Their medium is language, which is ironic given that Chan and Zen describe themselves as a special transmission outside the scriptures, not dependent on words, but the people who originally said that were deeply literate, well-read and writing all the time, intent on understanding, intent on communicating. To be rich in shine is to be rich in expression, said the teacher known as the overnight guest. <laughs> it's, it's quite a contradiction, isn't it? Mm-hmm to believe that it doesn't depend on words, but then to be writing and reading all the time. Reminds me of that um, um, 
teacher who was asked what you're talking about can't be described in words, can it? And the teacher said, you're right, but you need to say something. <laughs> <laughs> or something along those lines, I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> There's a book by that title and it's they have it at the Austin Zen Center and I took it out and the only person who had ever taken it out was Todd. <laughs> His name was written in the book. You know. They spoke of reading people, events, and landscapes as texts. People are described as unscrolling sutras with every word in action, as if everything else, including what is ordinarily thought of as non-sentient. They called reality the Great Sutra. A quote from the Diamond Sutra was taken up as a koan. All Buddhas and their teachings arise from this sutra. What is this sutra? Sutras are recited as well as read, and the idea of reciting the great sutra of reality brings to mind a passage from Rainer Maria Rilke's Ninth Duino Elegy. Perhaps we are here in order to say house, bridge, fountain, gate, pitcher, fruit tree, window, at most, column, tower, but to say them, you must understand. Oh, to say them more intensely than the things themselves. Ever dreamed of existing? To say them more intensely than the things themselves ever dreamed of existing. And that's nice. When the ancestors insisted that book learning wouldn't get you there on its own. They weren't condemning language out of hand, but making a distinction between living and dead words. Dead words have been turned into abstract objects held at a distance, accumulated and repeated rather than lived. If it sounds like concepts, doesn't it? If they encourage anything, it is to carry on with the habitual. Ling Ji said that the idea of Buddha we have in our head is a ghost Buddha. In the same way, words that live only in our heads are ghost words. Living words are an essential part of the moment in which they arise, as glistening with vitality as a tree after rain. They have the power to change our minds. They have the power to heal. One way to tell the difference between dead and living words is to ask whether the words are drowning out the most important thing in any moment or giving it voice. I like that. Hmm. Making a distinction. I'm just wondering how someone could learn something if all they did was study. Right. Yes. <laughs> well, I looked up. <clears throat> I looked up Terry Tempest Williams. And, oh, I uh, did too. <laughs> <laughs> but you go ahead. Tell the story. <laughs> oh well, I don't. Maybe there is more to the story. But she married somebody whose last name was Williams. And her parents' last name was Tempest. Mm. 
Right. Oh. Oh, not so very mysterious, funny. Oh. Yeah. That, that's, <laughs> that's kind of common, isn't it, though, to have a family name as a middle name, some sort of yeah. family name? Mm-hmm. I have a strange middle name, and my sister did too. It's, I don't know, Western culture, whatever. Well, what is it? Oh, my middle name is Lemoyne. And yeah, Lemoyne. And it was a family name. Another ancestor had that uh-huh. name, you know, as a last name. And your sisters? Oh. Um, Vincent, Sarah Vincent, and Vincent again was a family name on my father's side. Mm. Yeah, but nothing so dramatic as Tempest. (laughs) (laughs) We did the same with our son Taylor, but more for the reason to be inclusive of both families. Yeah, so he has my maiden name as his middle name. And Malin was telling me she has two last names. One's her mother and one's her father. Mm-hmm. She was saying that's very common in Mexico. Yeah. And, and it's it's interesting. I had just this conversation that, um, related to what Malin said. And in Mexico, in the United States, for example, being Hispanic, in the United States, I put my mother's middle name, I mean, my mother's last name in the middle. So Nelda Carmen Peña Sanchez. But in Mexico, it's reversed. The mother's um, surname comes last. Yes. Okay. Um, Okay. Uh, Awakening isn't dependent on words, but neither is it. Oh, gosh. Sorry. It's late for me. Awakening is independent of words, but neither is it independent of them, which makes words the same as everything else. Uh, this world, its speech and its silence, is the field of our awakening. Uh, any being, event, or object might call forth awakening in us. There's a term of art for such language, turning words. Words that turn our perspective just a degree or two, which makes all the difference. A bit of sutra floating across Huineng's path, the cry of a bird at dawn, the response to a question coming at just the right moment, all equally illuminated, all equally capable of illuminating. Uh, Koans are made of language that mysteriously conveys awakening within itself. They're made of awakening and words. As we make the words of the koans our own, wisely digesting them, in the Chinese teacher Han Bo Ji Jung's formulation, we make the awakening our own too. Meaning means something different in a koan. It is the true fact of the koan, which isn't something that can be deduced by reason, but is the shard of awakening contained there. You know, there's a, 
I'm just thinking about this uh, words and it's not dependent on awakening. I mean, there's a, a dementia, primary progressive aphasia that takes away words and language and understanding language. And so I always think, I, so I, anyways, I, I think about, yes, that awakening is not dependent on words because if it was only dependent on, you know, a specific capacity that we have, then that just being dependent on that wouldn't make really sense in my head. It seems to me that um, the paragraph ahead of that is kind of, uh, you know, all these words coming at just the right moment. It's very, uh, each person is unique, you know, so it's a different word almost and a different turn of a word for each individual. You just don't know when it's coming for you, you know. Um, you know, I'd like to think if I, you know, kind of really felt into a certain koan that I would awaken just the way Winning did, you know, but for him, it was a very specific moment in time and a very specific turning, you know, that I probably um, elicited his, his awakening, you know, so. Koan language is vivid. It's meant to stop the flow of habitual thought and feeling for a moment, to surprise us into seeing things differently, or at least into asking non-usual questions about them. It's meant to draw on other parts of our intelligence, besides cognitive thinking, like intuition and imagination. Here are some koans. Make the mountains dance. In a well, no one dug, water ripples from a spring that doesn't flow. Someone with no shadow or form is drawing the water. Save a ghost. Without using your hand, get me to stand up. There is nothing I dislike. A tree older than the forest it stands in. Each branch of coral holds up the light of the moon. Mm, beautiful. Save a ghost is my favorite. Save a Ghost is traditional Japanese, most recently from a World War II battlefield story without mm -hmm. using your hands. Oh, and then it goes on and on in different ones. Okay. Language like this rises out of silence and makes a bridge from one awakening to another, one imagination to another. Koans are a form of metaphor, the unexpected links that language can make. In classical Chinese, the original language of the koans, you don't ask, let me do that again. In classical Chinese, the original language of the koans, you don't ask, what is love? 
you ask, what is love like? These two questions are inviting different kinds of responses. Asking what something is pulls for an answer or an explanation. Asking what something is like invites an example of love or what love is like for you or something similar to love in an essential way. Metaphors are polytheistic. My love is red, red roses. Love is a dagger through my heart. Love is blind. Love is the opening door. Explanations are monotheistic. Love is a phenomena triggered state neurochemically indistinct <laughs> from psychosis. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Metaphors and explanations have different views of what truth is. Explanations settle things and a journey comes to an end, which is sometimes a relief and sometimes premature. Metaphors connect one thing to another, often in new ways, and the journey veers off in unexpected directions. Metaphor literally means to carry across. Metaphors are the rafts and ferry boats of the imagination. They cross boundaries, break down categories, forge alliances, and arrange matches. Turn the hard iron of life into clay. Play chords instead of single notes and invent new colors out of the old. They unstick what's stuck and remind us that we are all kin. As Hannah Arendt observed, metaphors are the means by which the oneness of the world is poetically brought about. I needed to, um, I was going to say the paragraph before when they said, don't ask the question, what is love? But what do I mean by love? What is it? What is love like, right? Mm -hmm. But in a way, that was the question I asked that led to an awakening moment for me. What is love? And I asked it in meditation and I figured I didn't really know. And I started journalizing about what was love like for me. And then I realized it didn't make any sense. Um, it couldn't be the love that I was experiencing. Couldn't be the love that I was think, you know, was asking about if that makes any sense. So I just had to leave it open. You know, like I didn't know really what they mean by, well, I put unconditional love. What does they mean by that? You know, I, you know, and I couldn't find it anywhere in my experience. And then um, about three weeks later, after I finished journaling about it, was driving, I had an experience and I was shown what the answer to my question. And um, so I think what it was trying to do in this, you know, what we just read is don't think you're going to get an answer by asking the question you know the answer isn't going to come in the form of a down you know some sort of a somebody answering saying well this is love this is what it looks like this is you know um it's going to come in the way of your experiencing in, a, in an odd way so i don't know it just made me think of that yeah that's a good point and and one that i feel 
experience more and more as I practice um, in our Sangha. I actually get more of a sense of what things are in watching and experiencing others practice than I do in reading all the words in all the books. And that's not to minimize the importance of that. Um, but there are sometimes I just want to say, can we all just be quiet and be together? <laughs> just be, um, because we do in this practice, in my perspective, use a lot of words. <laughs> so enough said. It's easy to drown, isn't it? Yes. To lose the path because the words are getting in the way, like whatever that plant was in the first metaphor, <laughs> and not see the birds, the flock of birds fly. So anyway. My wife is really uh, smart about this, and she sees right through it. In fact, we went into a bookstore and she saw all the books were like self-help books or personal growth books. And she like looked around and was looking at them and said, there aren't any books here. It was the same idea that it was just books telling you what kind of what to do. Well, the interesting thing is, is that when I was asking the question, I kind of thought the answer was outside of myself somewhere, like somebody had the answer. And if I meditated on it enough, it would come to me in the form of somebody answering my question. And when I had the experience of what I was asking, it came from deep within me, actually from my core and moved up in an energetic. It, it, was, it was beyond words. It was different. And it was coming from me. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you know, I think that goes back to our original thing, you know, where the guy's asking, how do you know you don't know? You know, <laughs> something knows. And, so yet, and, yet, and yet I will add this, having dissed words so much, I sit with Peg's poem inside a moment in front of me. Um, it's on my table and I read it every day. And they're words, but but I see Peg and I hear her heart and the way she reminds us what a glorious cathedral each moment is. Um, these particular words are really, really important to me. So I, I understand that sometimes just the right word or combination um, can move mountains. Well, do we want to go on or stop here? We have a little bit more for this paragraph, for this chapter. Go on. Yes, let's go on. Okay. Who's reading? Show me. Okay. There has always been a creative tension between koans as literature and koans as a means of awakening. The two contributors to the first Chinese koan collection, the Blue Cliff Record included poetry and poetic prose as commentary intending, intending it to be literature. The later 
contributor, <laughs> Yuan Yu Kikin, entrusted the book to his Dharma heir, Dawi Jungo, who eventually burned the wooden printing blocks so no more copies could be made. Dawi felt that the koans were for awakening. And anything else like liter literary value was misdirection. He invented a new way of working with the koan, using what he considered the salient word or phrase, the how to, the wow to, or window on the source, rather than the text as a whole. It's interesting that in stripping the koan, stripping koan meditation of a relationship to literature, Setting aside even the small story each Cohen tells, he imbued a few key words with extraordinary power. After Dawi, the Blue Cliff record pretty much disappeared for over a century and a half when it was reconstructed from handwritten copies. Um, a koan doesn't resolve an apparent duality by choosing one pole over another, but by finding a third option that includes them both in something larger. This is pretty much what happened with Yuan Wu's and Dawi's approaches. By introducing poetic language and imagery, Yan Wu offered places for our souls, as well as our meditating heart minds to attach to the koans. We could bring our imaginations and creativity to the koans, and they could spread beyond the meditation hall to become part of the larger culture in everything from art to politics. Dawei reeled the koans back in, refocusing them on the essential project of awakening. In the centuries that followed, the two approaches have become increasingly companionable. And now we draw simultaneously on Wan Wu's vision and Dao Wei's method. Uh, one of the most moving times in work in the room is when someone is having an opening. At first, the two of you sit in the silence, letting things unfold in the wild. At a certain point, it's time to ask some questions that will help deepen and give shape to the experience. This movement from the vastness into the world of form, which is the journey of every opening, begins in language. The beauty of someone trying to express the ineffable, searching for words that might come anywhere near the wonder, unaware of the movements of their hands, groping to mold something out of the air, their eyes looking around as though they might alight on something that would give them the language they need. Words, when they finally come, don't describe their experience, but are another instance of it. This is what my opening is like. The koans you take up at such a time reflect what such a time is like. 
nonlinear, paradoxical, full of surprising associations and insights, deep and <coughs> wide beyond measure, incommunicable in the ordinary ways. They are precisely accurate, a language native to that place. As we gradually rejoin a life already in progress, the koans are a kind of traveler's phrase book for the journey back into the familiar world seen with new eyes. Would this be a good stopping point? Yeah. Yes, and I would like to say something about the ineffable. <laughs> um, Peter Schildahl's uh, daughter was a student of mine and she wrote a thesis. And the thesis was many years ago, um, had in the title, Ineffable. <laughs> and uh, it was just incredible to, to work with her. Uh, I mean, she was very young. She was, he, he, she was here in, in, in Austin. And she, she was making her way through uh, her degree by um, doing reviews on the local theater. So I got to know her. I got to know her father as well because she won some prizes for, for her thesis. And then her father came. His mother could not, uh, her mother could not come. So they had an extra dinner. <laughs> for the celebration from the university. So they invited me. So whenever I hear ineffable, I cannot help and just recall that I cannot go in all the detail. I'd be speaking for a while, but um, yeah, but I don't know whether at that time she would have been uh, really interested in cons. So she was actually translating and and finding the ineffable in one of the chapters of one of the uh, Sanskrit, early Sanskrit uh, texts. Here's one of my favorite poems, and it has ineffable in it. Oh, let's hear it. Um, well, it's, a, it's by T.S. Eliot, The Naming of Cats. Mm -hmm. The naming of cats is a difficult matter. It just... It isn't just one of your holiday games. You may think at first, I'm as mad as a hatter when I tell you a cat must have three different names. First of all, there's the name that the family used daily, such as Peter, Augustus, Alonzo, or James, such as Victor or Jonathan, George or Bill Bailey, all of them sensible everyday names. There are fancier names if you think they sound sweeter some for the gentlemen, some for the dames, such as Plato, Admetus, Electra, Demeter, but all of them sensible everyday names. But I tell you, a cat needs a name that's particular, a name that's peculiar and more dignified, else how can he keep up his tail perpendicular or spread out his whiskers or cherish his pride? Of names of this kind, I can give you a quorum, such as Munskustrap, Quazzo, or Corkopat, sorry, such as Bombal, Urina, or Jelly Lorem, names that never belong to more than one cat. But above and beyond, there's still one name left over, 
And that is the name you never will guess. The name that no human research can discover, but the cat knows, but the cat himself knows and will never confess. When you notice a cat in profound meditation, the reason I tell you is always the same. His mind is engaged in a rapt contemplation of the thought of the thought of the thought of his name is an effable, 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 <laughs> however, deep and inscrutable singular name. Isn't that fun? It's a great poem. And Trouty, it delighted me to, to listen to you talk and to hear that one word brought back a whole life for you, this young girl's life and her family and moments in your life. One word. That was lovely to watch. Well, thank you. I, I just thought that I was probably getting carried away, but I have a cat sitting on my back. <laughs> And I, whenever I hear the word, I think of the, the, that cat in meditation, thinking about its name that no one else knows. Yes, that's wonderful. Yeah, that poem is wonderful. Have you, do you know the poem before? Have you heard Yes, the yes, oh, yes. Okay. I used to perform <laughs> pretending to be T.S. Eliot. Oh, wow. <laughs> Many years ago. <laughs> hmm. So that's why you like cats. Yes. <laughs> of course. Well, okay. thank you. This Thanks was... everyone for coming. Yes, no, this was yeah. fabulous. And I'm sorry I was late. Uh, something happened with the water in the neighborhood, and I don't know. Uh, I had to take care of it. <clears throat> so, but I'm, I'm glad that I joined. There was still enough time. Good night. Bye. Good night. Good night. Bye. Bye. Bye.